Lord God, help us to see. Prophets are hard. Help us to understand. Enlighten us. Grant us the peace and the joy that are herein spoken of and attested to through the coming one. We pray this in his name, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Prophets are indeed hard to figure out. Prophets are not the kind of guys you would probably want to have over for a nice fireside chit-chat. They tend to not be very cheerful folks. They are reservoirs of doom and cisterns of gloom. They're grouchy and they're angry and they are uncomfortable. They are pessimistic, if you will. They're, they're worse than glass half full kind of people. They're, they're, they are people who are saying, listen, not only is your glass half full, but your glass is going to be taken away from you and crushed, by the way. And just when you think you've got them figured out, just when you think you can pigeonhole them and say, this is who they are, these prophets, don't hang around with these guys, you, you get a passage like this one. They, they slip in under the radar screen something like Isaiah chapter 9 in the midst of all of this doom and gloom that they're talking about, something that is so bright, so glorious, so joyful that you read it and kind of go like, Isaiah, what happened? Did you end up in some kind of a manic period here and this just flowed out of your pen in the midst of your otherwise gloomy life and worldview? Have you turned into some kind of wild-eyed optimist when we weren't watching? And if we ask, what makes the difference between gloomy Isaiah and joyous Isaiah? And you take a look at this passage, we see, and, and, and we'll see it as we look at this text, you can see it as you look at any number of texts, that what makes the difference between those two things seems to be so incredibly tenuous. It seems to rest on just this tiny sliver. All of Isaiah's eggs are in one basket. The hope that he's talking about is balanced, literally, it's balanced on a knife edge. The image uh, that I've had in my mind, it's, it's been in my mind for a couple of weeks now as I've thought about this text in preparing to preach it this morning. Whether it works or not for you, I, it's the one that's been in my mind. But, but I've thought of it as, a, a, in the first place, a triangle. So think of just an equilateral triangle with uh, the, the base sitting flat, and that representing gloom. And, and it comes to this point up here, and Isaiah takes another triangle, and he balances it right on top of that one. And it is this joyous, glorious vision. And, and essentially what he's done is he's taken two points of two triangles. The top one seems to be greater than the bottom one. And he's balanced them together right on the point. How stable is that? Try and do it. Your kids have blocks at home. See if you can make those two things balance. All, all of this for Isaiah is balanced on the shoulders of a child. There are multiple metaphors that are used in, well, in Isaiah and in this passage in particular, but as we look at it today, I, I want to use a familiar one for us because I want to make it a, as clear as possible as we look at this text. And it's a familiar one for us because it's pervasive throughout Scripture, but also it's one that we looked at 
a couple of times as we closed out the Gospel of Luke, and that is the, the idea that is found right at the beginning of this of going from darkness to light and then looking at the switch. What is the thing that makes the difference between the darkness and the light? So let, let's look at it in just that way since that is Isaiah or one of Isaiah's metaphors. Let's first look at the darkness or the gloom that he describes. This is a bad time for the people of Israel. There were lots of bad times, but this is one of them, and this is a particular one of them. Isaiah is writing a few years before the destruction of the northern portion of Israel by the Assyrians. So, if you want to date that, probably sometime in the early 730s BC is when he's writing this passage. Now, just the very brief history, just remember that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts, the southern part being normally called Judah and the northern part being normally called Israel. And Isaiah is writing right before this northern kingdom will be taken over, ransacked by the Assyrians. In fact, he's writing at the time when the invasions have begun, when the first forays have gone into the land, and that's what's described there in the first few verses, that already some of the tribes and some of the northernmost areas are experiencing this hand of warfare, this hand of destruction that is coming upon them. Chapter 8 describes this, and other places in Isaiah describe this as well. And, and we're not going to look at that because it's, it's, it's far too much. But it is important just to hear the words that Isaiah uses to describe the people and their destruction in chapter 8. He describes the invasion saying that the people will be broken and shattered they will, this is the people of God we're talking about here, this is Israel, they will stumble and fall. They will be snared and taken. For, Isaiah's words, God is hiding His face from them. He's turned His face away from them. You've heard me, you know from Numbers, the benediction with which we close a number of our services, that the Lord will make His face to shine upon you. Well, this is the exact opposite of that. This is God turning His face away from His people. Again, in the words of Isaiah in 8, they will be distressed and hungry. They will blame everyone but themselves. They'll blame kings. They'll blame God for what's going on, but they won't look at themselves. And I'll just read the very last verse of the chapter right before what I read as indicative of the whole. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. He's not talking about the Assyrians. He's talking about his people. He's talking about Israel in writing that. And just to be clear, this isn't to be seen as some kind of natural disaster that just happened to take place at this particular time. The people of Israel are not to be seen as innocent victims being taken over by a mighty oppressor army. Rather, they are the ones who are guilty. They are sinners before God. They are the cause of this action. God is taking the action. He is executing His justice and His vengeance and His wrath upon them, but it's because of what they've done. So there are no innocent victims in this passage Later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, verse 2, 
it says your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not see. That is the operative reason for the turning away of the face of God, is the rebellion of his people. The world was, the world is in turmoil. It's gloomy. For the people of Israel, 722 B.C. was a bad year. It was the year the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom and took off the people into captivity. It would never be restored. Those people would never come back. God uses those seeds planted later. But it was a bad year. 2014, one struggles to know how to rank years, but a casual look at 2014 says, this is a pretty bad year. It's pretty gloomy. I know some of you are optimistic and you see it the other way. Well, there's a lot of bad stuff in the, year, in the world that took place in this year. Isaiah is a declarer of darkness. He does not mince words. He does not hide it. He does not play a political game of saying everything's fine, everything's good. Everything will always be good. He tells it like it is. However hard that is for them, however hard that is for us to hear. But in chapter 9, he, Isaiah, is treated too, and then he treats his readers to what is comparatively a blinding light. When it's set in juxtaposition to, which is exactly what is done, the thick darkness that ended chapter 8. I'm sorry for the pun, but it is the difference between day and night. That's what's going on here. These two things are so different, you can hardly compare them one with the other, and yet there they are, sitting right next to one another. Isaiah foresees another activity of God. He sees the judging activity of God, the doom and gloom stuff, but he sees this, this, this seemingly opposite activity of God described for us in this passage. And it's impossible to exegete every part of this, but let me just comment as we work our way through, noting the changes in chapter 9. So if you've got your bulletin open, just, just work through it with me. Instead of gloom, there will be not. It'll be removed from the people. The anguish will be soothed, okay? No gloom for the people who were in anguish. There's no more of that. Contempt. He had brought them into contempt in the former time. What is contempt? Hatred. A deep hatred. Instead of contempt, it is replaced with love. It is replaced with affection. And now that which had been shameful, places that have been battered in war, places that have been taken over, been defeated, shall become glorious. Parentheses. I know there's not a lot of basketball fans here, but there's a few basketball fans here. Israel in chapter 8 is posterized. Posterized. It's a basketball term. It's when somebody, when you go up to defend somebody, you go up to block their shot, and they dunk right over you. And somebody snaps a photo, and that becomes a poster. You are posterized at that moment. Israel is posterized. They're posterized for all of us to see. There's nothing hidden about it. We're reading about it thousands of years after it took place. God says, I want everybody to see it because I want you to know. And then, and then, I have a glorious transformation. 
I'm going I'm to make that which was posterized glorious. Just wait and see what I'm going to do. That's the reversal that's going on here. Verse uh, 2 in chapter 9. So, of course, here we've got the deep darkness is transformed by the great light, the shining light that is then brought into this land of darkness, this people of darkness. Verse 3, instead of these few, remember a couple of weeks ago I preached on the few, instead of the few, Isaiah, the Lord, envisions a multiplied nation. In place of the few will come the many who will be part of this renewed kingdom, a multiplied nation. Instead of sadness, there will be joy. Instead of weeping, there will be rejoicing. I won't go and take time to do this right now, but all of these things, this language that is used here, in, especially in verses 3, 4, are language, is language that is drawn from two places in particular in Scripture. One is the Exodus. So it's looking at the, the oppression of the people, and God said, I'm, I'm going to break that. I'm going to take care of the oppressors. I'm going to take care of the people who have held you back. I've done that before. And the other is in Judges, in the book of Judges, the story of Gideon, the, the battle of Midian. There was a time when God took a few under Gideon and used them to defeat a many. He used lights in that process, if you want to go back and read that story in the book of Judges. I think it's seven, eight-ish. Uh, but he refers to those, and he's reminding Israel of their history. God is going to do something like the things that he's done in the past for you, but it'll be better. The reactions of the people at best with those deliverances were mixed, temporary, right? We've seen that in Exodus as we looked at Exodus recently. What are the reactions of people after they come out of the land? Well, it's not exactly this. It's not exactly joyous dancing all the time, short-lived, but then they go into grumbling and complaining. Isaiah is describing them as examples of what God will do, things he has done in the past, and how God will work in the future, but it'll be better than that. Instead of defeat, there will be victory. And all of this, all of this clothing, all of the, the garb of warfare, we're to take all that all bloodied, we're going to roll it all up, and we're going to use this fuel for the fire. You're not going to need that warfare clothing anymore. Those uniforms can be got rid of. This is 180 degrees from what was going on in chapter 8. And can we say this? It seems like fantasy speak. And we said that with the resurrection. It seems like fantasy speak to a people who know that a great army is ready to ransack their land. How can this possibly be? But Isaiah is so sure that this is going to take place, that, did you notice this? That he's speaking in the past tense. He's a prophet, and he's looking way, way forward in history. But he's not just looking forward in history to the destruction, but he's looking forward in history to the restoration, and he's so confident of it that he, he flips it around. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll use past tense here to describe what is taking place. One wonderful commentator on this passage writes, the future is so secure as something that has already happened. Isaiah casts himself forward in time and then looks back, recalling the events. 
And it begs the obvious question, I think at least it begs the obvious question, how does this happen? What is the switch? What makes the difference between the darkness and the light? Now, you might expect at the end of verse 5, verse 5 is the one that says all of that warfare clothing is going to be rolled up for battle, and, and you're kind of asking, well, how's that going to take place? Why, how, how do you get rid of the warfare clothing? Well, you might expect an answer that would be something like, because I'm going to raise up a great army who will defeat all of the others. And once you've defeated all of the others, you don't need that warfare clothing anymore. You can get rid of it. I'm going to give you new weapons. I'm going to make you excellent at cyber warfare. I'm going to make you nuclear capable, chemically capable, but of course that's not what is written for us in verse 6. Switches are very small things. They're insignificant things. They're inglorious little things in and of themselves. I, uh, I love Christmas lights. Uh, what I don't have are a lot of outdoor outlets. In fact, I only have two outlets. The, uh, there, there, were, there are two more, but they got burned out. Uh, but there are only two outlets that are outside, and there are lots of Christmas lights on the outside of the house. One, one of you uh, snidely said that I was Griswoldian in my approach to Christmas lights. If you don't know that reference, good for you. Uh, but one of you does, uh, who accused me of being so. And I would just simply like to say, if I am in fact Griswoldy, and I blame it on my neighbor Joe, who happens to have been here today, who led me into this battle of the lights that I have with him. But nevertheless, all of my lights are connected to one switch. One little switch hidden behind a curtain that if I'd have to tell you where it is. There's no way you could find that switch in my house because of where it is hidden. All of Isaiah's hopes for light rest not on the many, not on the few, but on the one. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Every bit of hope rests on the shoulders of one. If you can keep him from being born, if you can get to him when he's an infant, kill him, get rid of him, think Exodus, think Moses, think the stories of Christ and Herod. If you can get to the one, if you can, if you can have the one fall through temptation, make him part of the problem rather than the solution. If you can get that one, darkness wins. And so darkness is going to go after it. It's the weak spot. It's the, it's the pivot point. It's that point right there. You get that point, and you win this battle. Israel's history has come to that point, and the future of the world hangs in the balance right here. So, who is the one? What is Isaiah talking about? Well, the backdrop of this expectation is a long-standing expectation that is part of Israel's history, part of the written Word of God, part of the prophetic expectation that we're waiting for a son of David to come. We've had David, we've had Solomon, but we are waiting for another son of David. And thus you see in this passage all of the language that relates to kingship. 
So the talk of the government being upon his shoulders, of the increase of his government, the talk about him being on the throne of David, ruling over his kingdom with justice and with righteousness, is all in the context of this grand expectation of one son who's going to come to rule in David's place. Now remember, David was about 300 years before this point in history, so David's a while ago in terms of the recollection of the people. But to recognize that this one who is to come is a son of David is to, in fact, recognize his humanity. He's going to be one who is born, a child who is born. That's the point of the very first verse. A child is born, for unto us a child is born. He comes into the world in just the way other people come into the world. He is human. And being human, he comes into the world being born naturally, that is to say through natural human processes. But as you recognize this humanity and as you recognize this Davidic connection, and if you, if you caught this in the, uh, the Belgic Confession when we looked at that together earlier, all of those references about David, all of those statements about David, all of the emphasis that he's coming from David, that he's of the line of David, that he's a human as he came, you start to realize that, that immediately here, when you start to talk about him, it becomes clear that he's not an ordinary human, that he has attributes that simple humanity cannot handle. Turn back one page probably in your Bible, Isaiah 7, 14, a verse that you know as well from the Christmas story. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is to say God with us. Well, so, so the child is born, but the son is given. And in that very language of the son is given, it's a little bit unusual. It's a little bit unusual to our ears in English. It's a little bit unusual to the Hebrew ears. Well, what does that exactly mean? That the Son is given to us. There's a suggestion when you talk about the Son being given of a pre-existence of this Son. A child is born, but the Son has been given to you. Could you think of this just for a moment in light of the most popular verse in the New Testament? For God so loved the world that He gave his one and only son. That's right here. That's exactly what's being described here. A pre-existent son has been given to humanity. And appropriate, I'm sure, I'm sure Isaiah wrote this. People heard it and scratched their head a little bit and went, okay, I don't get it. Can, you know, what, what is happening at this particular time. And then we've got all of these great names that are ascribed to him. And all of these names, as you work your way through them, are names where you go, um, isn't it blasphemous? Doesn't it border on blasphemy to ascribe these to a person, even a really great person, even a king-like person, even a son of David? So these, these great titles that are provided for us in verse 6 that he is, and I know this, this goes back and forth, is it wonderful counselor or is it wonderful? And then second thing, counselor. Uh, I'm inclined to put the two together, but However you do that, whether you uh, take the handle approach or the approach of your ESVs, wonderful counselor. The idea of wonderful here is not just, not just the way we would casually use wonderful, but it is the idea of miraculous, of supernatural. There's nothing else like him. It's incomparable. 
And the idea of counselor is that this king, as he comes into the world, does not need to be surrounded with other counselors. That's what a king has. Don't think of this in the, in the, the psychology counseling realm. A king has counselors that are around him to give him advice, to give him wisdom. This one doesn't need any. Why? Because he's the, the, the supernatural, wise counselor of all others. And then the titles that follow build on this. He is mighty God. That is a, a, a title that's even used within the next chapter to clearly refer to God himself. And so you're, you're, you're looking at this and going, wait a minute, the son, the child, he's mighty God as well, everlasting father. Eternality is one of the things that is emphasized in this passage and in other passages that relate to David's son. He will reign on the throne of David forever, from this time forth and forevermore. The eternality of this descendant in particular, which immediately gets you into the sense of well, this isn't a human. David himself didn't reign forever. Father, when you hear that, you kind of go, well, that's puzzling. Didn't you just call him son? Is he a son or is he a father? What is he? And it's even puzzling for us in the Christian world, right? What, what just happened there? Until we just think and reflect for a moment on the identity between the father and the son so that Jesus can make the statement that I and the father are one. This one will bear so much of the image of God, so much of the deity of God in him that he can be called by the attributes that pertain to his father. He's the prince of peace. He is able to end the warfare. What warfare is he able to end? The warfare between Assyria and Israel? No. The warfare between God and men. Now, if you're visiting with us today, you think, well, that's not very cheery uh, in Christmas to think about the warfare between God and men. But that's what the one is coming to do. That's the warfare that exists. The enmity that exists is between God and man. And the Prince of Peace comes to bring peace first, foremost, to that relationship between God and men, to resolve that warfare. It will bleed in a good way into other areas. It will bleed perhaps into international relationships. It may bleed into relationships within the church, within families, so there is less horizontal warfare. But the warfare that has to be solved is the warfare between God and man, and that the Prince of Peace comes to do. So he is human, but these titles are clearly divine titles about him. Who is he? Well, every book in the New Testament tries to answer the question to affirm for us that it is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth that is being referred to here. The great question Perhaps you can summarize all of the New Testament in one question from John the Baptist. Are you the one? Are you the one, or should we expect another? And the great answer of the New Testament is, he's the one. He's this one, and the one who fills all of the other prophecies as well. He is the one. He came and, 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 and now you can put together the birth story with the other passage that I had us read in the New Testament reading that quotes this. Jesus is driven to that particular place, to where the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. And there Jesus begins this preaching ministry. 
He doesn't advance the kingdom in the way that you'd think a kingdom would be advanced by a king, i.e. through armies with military might or cyber might. He advances the kingdom through the preaching, through the declaration of the word. That's the way the kingdom is being advanced by Jesus. That's the way the writers understood Jesus' fulfillment of this passage in this particular place. He is the one. He is the God-man. He is, front of your bulletins, the one mediator between God and man, born of a woman, born of the Holy Spirit, given of God out of love, light of the world, conqueror of darkness. He is the one on whom it all rests, and his shoulders can bear the weight. He's God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. He's given. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah, those are nice words. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Good to hear. But how can you be so sure? You're talking 700 years from now. How can you be so sure that this is going to take place? Last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, period. It doesn't depend on Isaiah. It doesn't depend on Israel. It doesn't depend on Judah. It doesn't depend on us. The zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, He'll do it. He is mighty to accomplish exactly what he says. You may know this about this word, the word zeal. The word zeal can also be and often is in Scripture translated as jealousy. You could read this verse, the jealousy of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, we think of jealousy as a bad thing. When God is jealous, that's not a bad thing. God loves what He loves, and He will not let anyone mess with it. One commentator writes it like this, God's jealousy contends for the object of its love against everything that touches either the object or, or the love itself. That's what His jealousy does. It says, no way. That is mine. I love it. I love them. Do not mess with them. It is the jealousy of God that is, turns into the zeal of God to accomplish that which He has said for the declaration of peace with His people. The sending of the Son and the surety of the mission of the One is grounded in the burning love of God. The jealous love of God. First, the fathers for the son, and then the father and the sons for the people whom the father has given to the son. The gloomy few dwelling in darkness will become the joyous many dwelling in light because of the one. Because Mary's son is, in fact, the loved one of God. 
the only begotten of the Father, before all worlds. Believe in him. Take every egg you have and put it in that basket. It's the only safe basket. That's, a, that's an Exodus analogy, by the way. That's a Moses in a basket analogy. You want to put that in the New Testament, take every egg you have and put it in that manger. It's a safe place. He can bear the weight. Put every hope you have and believe in Jesus, the light of the world, the one, the one and only begotten of the Father. Let's pray.